Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. C'est le retour. Yeah, We're back. la rentrée. Yeah, back from the <laughs> summer break, back to the capital. Did you go anywhere nice, discover anything new over the summer? Well, um, I stayed in France uh, and I spent time in Aveyron. It's mm. in the sort of center south of the country, I'd say, right below the Massif Central. Um, it's not new for me. I know the area quite well, but... I did make a new discovery there. I discovered lavender. Hmm. Yeah, grown famously in Provence, of course, but some have found that it can be grown elsewhere. Intriguing. Mm. So that will be coming up a little bit later in the program. Yeah, yeah. But of course, um, talking about vacation, packing for vacation, right? Sandals, check. Bathing suit, check, right? And your health pass. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, this COVID health pass has really been looming over the yep. summer holidays and we're definitely not out of the woods. Mm -mm. So basically what it is, is that you have to prove that you're virus free in order to access a whole range of spaces, public spaces in France. Mm. And the health pass itself is this QR code that you have either on your phone or a piece of paper. And it's generated either through your full vaccination records or a negative uh, or recent negative COVID test mm. or uh, showing that you recovered from the virus. Yeah, so it's application is very, very broad. Mm -hmm. uh, you need it to go into restaurants and cafes, cultural venues, but also libraries, taking a long distance train, uh, even going to the doctor or uh, going to hospital. Mm -hmm. And France, in fact, has the strictest application of the health pass of any Western country. And it's not just customers who are required to show it. Uh, as of the 9th of August, it was extended to around 2 million employees, people working in bars, in restaurants, in shops, places where they're coming into contact with the public. And if they don't have the pass, they can be suspended without salary. Yeah, even losing their jobs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And for health workers, uh, the pass isn't enough. They need to be vaccinated. That's yeah. got to be done by the middle of this month. Yeah, all this is, I mean, it's very strict, but the government's argument is that it's either this or lockdowns. Mm. Um, and it is a way of putting pressure, a lot of pressure on people to actually get vaccinated. Yeah, huge pressure. And it's worked. Uh, since the health pass was first introduced on the 12th of July, more than 12 million French people have got vaccinated. So now just over 70% have had a first dose and 62% are now fully vaccinated. Macron's stick has been uh, praised by some of the foreign press. But, but at home here, mm. not everyone is happy. There are these protests, right, yeah. every Saturday for the last two months. It's a small but very determined minority of people who are totally opposed to the health pass. Uh, in terms of numbers, government statistics show that there are around 200,000 people demonstrating in towns across France in July each Saturday. Those figures have gone down a bit recently to around 140,000. That was last weekend. Yeah, small numbers of people relative to the population, but bigger than anywhere else in Europe. And mm. also, I mean, it's unusual to have demonstrations in France during the summer. Yeah, the government and a lot of mainstream media have been portraying the protesters as anti-vaxxers, sometimes conspiracy theorists. Uh, yes, there are those people, but the movement's much broader than that. Some of these protests are being organized by Yellow Vest supporters. Right, that's the grassroots protest movement, right, that started in November 2018 over fuel taxes and broadened into a, a bigger anti-government movement. Yeah, others are being organized by the hard-right politician Florian Philippot, who is overtly anti-vax. So to get a, a better idea of all of this, I joined one of last Saturday's marches in Paris. Stuff the health pass, people are chanting as they march steadily through the streets here in Paris, holding up high the various messages that they want to get across to President Macron and his government. 
88-year-old Gilbert is sporting a yellow vest and pushing a wheelchair with the words Macron, I'll burn your health pass written on it. He's open about the fact he hasn't been vaccinated. We're talking about giving third doses of the vaccine, but I still need the first, he says, smiling to reveal his two remaining front teeth. 88 years old and fitted with a pacemaker, you'd have thought Gilbert might feel a bit vulnerable. Most of the seriously ill COVID patients are elderly, and more than 80% of the people who've died from the virus are over 60. That's what the government says. I don't believe it, he says. Lots of old people died without having COVID. There are lots of lies on the TV. One day they say white, the next black. I don't trust the government at all or the media. And when doctors themselves say people in their wards are dying from COVID, are they lying? Lots of them are Macron supporters. They have to toe the government line, he says. Gilbert isn't the only one to think Macron is more of a problem than the virus itself. Maurice, a sprightly retiree in his 70s, holds a banner which translates in English as Welcome to Controlistan. I consider this country is increasingly governed through control, obligation and bans. That's why I call it Controlistan. We're in great danger. Our government is using monstrous blackmail to enforce its decisions. They say you have to get jabbed, otherwise you'll lose your job and salary. It's a very worrying way to govern a country. I ask him whether he's against vaccination. People in the anti-pass movement have answered that question about a million times and for the millionth and first time I say we are not against vaccination, we're against it being compulsory. The media always point out that one person who's anti-vax to discredit all the others. It doesn't take long to identify an anti-vaxxer, though. Stephanie is 53 years old and works in real estate. She's pushing a bike with an anti-pass label on it and holds a placard which reads, To followers of the Covidiot sect, bog off. Imposing vaccinations a form of rape, she says. It involves penetrating the body with a substance. We know nothing about its composition. It's experimental. I call that genocide. Yes, it's a heavy word. But we're killing people through experimental injections without their knowledge. The figures aren't published. It's a secret war against the people. So if the figures aren't public, how do you know this is happening, I ask? Well, some nurses are resigning because they don't want to get vaccinated. They're starting to leak figures from hospitals. Information about terrible, incurable side effects, blindness, brain hemorrhages, loads of things we're not talking about. I suggest this might be because there are still no proven causal links between vaccination and the deaths. No one is blinder than the one who doesn't want to see, she says ominously. 
There's little fruitful discussion to be had with people like Stephanie and her companion who said he is a full supporter of QAnon, the conspiracy theory that originated in the US. Its followers believe that Satan-worshipping paedophiles are embedded in the deep state and are going to take over the world. Stephanie went on to warn me that we, as nasty mainstream media, have got it coming. But the QAnon brigade don't make up the majority of protesters. Further down the line, I land on Bernard Verneuil, a retired veterinary surgeon who believes in vaccines. La, la pandémie et la Covid-19 euh, est certes une maladie grave, mais qui, à mon avis, ne justifie pas... COVID-19 is certainly a serious illness, but I don't believe it justifies forcing people via the health pass to get the jab. We have the freedom and the choice to get vaccinated or not. What's more, the pass is dividing people. It's putting them against one another. There'll be fallout from that in a few months. Some people are so opposed to what they see as compulsory vaccination by the back door that they're prepared to lose their jobs. Marie-France works in psychiatric care in a care home until the 15th of September, that is. On the 16th, she'll be suspended, as will her colleagues who, like her, are not vaccinated. She's also here to denounce pressure to vaccinate children. Those over the age of 12 have until the 30th of September to get a health pass if they want to go everywhere. Aujourd'hui, il y a 5 millions de Français à comorbidité qui ne sont pas vaccinés et on demande à moi de faire vacciner mes enfants. There are 5 million people in France with comorbidities who aren't vaccinated and I'm being asked to vaccinate my kids aged 12 and 16. They're not the ones who will be filling up the ICUs. You have to be logical and not take French people hostage over the health paths. It's actually a disguised way of making vaccination obligatory. But as soon as you don't think like the government, you're labelled a murderer, a conspiracy theorist. As I told my daughter, I'm not against vaccination. You've had them all, even HPV. But my role as a mother is to protect you from this one. We just don't know what the effects might be. But that makes us conspiracy theorists. They say this is the country of human rights, of freedom. What a joke. So a mixed bunch of people there, not necessarily all anti-vaccine. Yeah, far from it, in fact. I spoke to some younger people who didn't want to be recorded on tape because they're very attached to preserving their anonymity. Uh, but they said they were just as opposed to QAnon as they are to the way that these QR codes are, in their eyes, breaching civil liberties, including private medical data. So, so what do we know generally, though, about who's protesting? Well, Antoine Brissiel is one of those researching the movement, and he says in terms of political affiliation, protesters are most likely to be sympathizers of the hard-right national rally led by Marine Le Pen or the far-left France Unbowed political parties. Mm, so on the political edges, I guess. Mm. Um, there's also, we've been seeing um, at least images and, and, and reports on a strand of sort of anti-Semitism that's popped up in these marches too. Yes, it seems to be a worrying phenomenon. A teacher in Moulouse in eastern France, uh, formerly with the National Rally, was recently prosecuted for brandishing an anti-Semitic banner on a march. Some of those signs, you know, they're implying that Jewish figures are profiting from the pandemic. 
What about the age group? I mean, how old are these protesters? There are a lot of 25 to 30 year olds. Bristol says that's hardly surprising when you think that those are the ones who are being impacted a lot by all mm -hmm. these restrictions on movement and going to places uh, on their social and professional life. And yet, for the most part, they're far less uh, at risk than, for example, the elderly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you met a lot of people who were quite hostile, in particular towards the government and Macron, especially. Yeah, maybe this is one of the big takeaways, in fact, Sarah because the movement is being fed by a mistrust of the political class, of the elites, as they say, and notably of Macron himself. Like the Yellow Vest movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, is, there is quite a bit of crossover, in fact. Protesters see this health pass as more of a political measure than as a health measure. And it has to be said that there are some inconsistencies in the way that the pass has been rolled out. You know, why do you need it for long distance train travel, but not going on the metro, mm. which can also be very crowded? Um, the health pass, uh, for example, was in place for very large shopping centres and now it's been lifted in the majority of them following pressure from local mayors and protesters think, well, that's a sign that it's more for economic reasons than health reasons. And then, of course, there is this mistrust of big pharma. We, we see that in a lot of the anti-vaccine movement beyond COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um some of the protesters, you know, as we heard in the report, they'll say that these vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, are uh, still very experimental, that they're not safe. And it is true that uh, those vaccines are still in the third phase of clinical trials, and that will be going on until the end of 2022. The companies say the results of those first two trials are very encouraging. So there is no problem. But it's true the information sometimes is not very clear. Mm. The relatively high vaccination rates, though, do suggest that most French are on board with this, though, right? Yeah. According to Bristiel, while most people are getting vaccinated now, there is a significant number who sympathize with the anti-pass movement, more than 30 percent of the mm. French, in fact. So they may not want to go out and demonstrate, but they understand those who are. In this anti-past movement, there's a, a great skepticism, right, of the media, mainstream media. Um, of course, here in France, there are alternatives to the mainstream. Um, one that stands out is the Canard Enchaîné. Yeah, this is this weekly newspaper, which is known for its independence. It's taken down a number of politicians mm -hmm. in the past, it uses political humor, and there are cartoons, but it's not quite like uh, Charlie Hebdo that some people will have heard about. It's not the humor that's, uh, it's not the jokes that are caught in controversy. Yeah, yeah, it's the investigative reporting. In fact, the Canard Enchaîné is one of the last investigative papers in France. And it was born, as it were, on the 10th of September 1915. Uh, the journalist Maurice Maréchal and his wife Jeanne and the illustrator Henri-Paul Gassier, they put out the first issue on that day. Yeah, so that was in the, the midst of World War I. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The idea was to get around wartime censorship and to counteract what they saw as the pro-military media that was spreading propaganda in favor of the war. Yeah, and the name, Canard Enchaîné, it means the chained duck and the word is a slang word for a newspaper, a rag. Yeah, yeah, and the chains are a reference to the press, which they saw as being chained up, as censored. Mm. 
They developed a style to avoid censors, which they personified in Madame Anastasie. She was always depicted with a pair of scissors. Um, the paper used coded language and mixed up words. Um, you can hear it in their first editorial where they wrote, ironically, that they will take great liberties to insist on rigorously inexact news because everyone knows the French media without exception since the start of the war only reports on implacably true news. Mm -hmm. The public is tired of it, they wrote. The public wants false news. So we'll give it to them. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that really set the tone for the paper in the future. Yeah, yeah. There were several satirical newspapers being published in France during World War One, but the Canard Enchaîné took a very pacifist, anti-military position. Later, during the Second World War, they stopped publishing uh, to avoid collaborating with the Nazi occupation. The paper's popularity came and went um, during the Cold War. This kind of anti-conformist satire was seen with great suspicion. Um, but by the 60s and 70s, it reattracted readers through its investigations into politics and the military. And its peak was in 1981 when the socialists came to power after decades. They had 730,000 copies printed each week. Uh, readership dropped, though, during that decade as, as people started seeing the paper as too complacent uh, in bed, as it were, mm. with the left-wing government. Yeah. And yet, it has always remained very, very independent. Yeah, politically and financially. I mean, even today, it runs no advertising. And it's owned by its own employees, mm -hmm. you know, their stakeholders in the business, which yeah. is very motivating for journalists. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, today, it's still coming out each mm. Wednesday. It relies a lot on unnamed sources, uh, although the information is concerned considered, you know, reliable, they do all their fact checking and everything. The general public can also leak stories and politicians do the same. Yeah, over the years, the paper has done things like publishing politicians tax returns, and they've broken scandals. I mean, maybe the, the most well known recent one is during the 2017 presidential campaign, François Fillon, he was running for the mainstream Républicain on the right, he was taken down by the paper that mm. revealed that his wife, Penelope, had been paid nearly a million euros in salary as a parliamentary employee but she had never actually done a day's worth of work in that position. <laughs> it's incredible when yeah. you think, isn't it, that without that scoop, without the canard maybe Fillon would have won the election. Yeah, yeah, and who knows what kind of world we'd be living in today. <laughs> yeah. The paper does nonetheless have a tradition of recognising its own errors, uh, and that helps inspire confidence, I guess. Um, there was even a segment called Pan sur le bec, Tap on the Beak, where they recognized and rectified when they made mistakes. Yeah, yeah. The paper's been the object of many lawsuits, but has rarely lost, also because it checks its sources. The paper is very political, and maybe necessarily it's very Parisian, very Paris-based, but it's also very popular around the country. It's often sold out by lunchtime. C'est la fête de la lavande Et je vois au fond de tes yeux Qu'à la fête de la lavande Un amour est né pour nous deux Un amour qui sent la lavande Et un ciel qui attend de bleu Car la fête de la lavande C'est le bleu, le bleu de tes yeux C'est la fête de la lavande So as we said earlier, um, this summer I went to go see Lavender. Yeah, but not in Provence. Yeah, yeah. So most of lavender grown in France is in Provence, in the foothills of the Alps, that's north of Marseille. But I was in Aveyron, about 250 kilometers to the west in the Massif Central. So Aveyron, that's home to Roquefort cheese. Yeah, example. yeah. The coasts of this region, the limestone plateaus, they're mostly pasture land for these grazing sheep. Some are producing milk for Roquefort cheese. But amongst the sheep and their fields, there was one purple one that stood out to me. And I discovered a man who is pushing the boundaries of the idea of terroir by growing lavender where it's never been tried before. 
Standing in the middle of this field, the bees busily going from one purple flower to another, you'd think you were in Provence. The regular rows of lavender plants follow the gentle downslope of the field, but looking up, the Cosse, the limestone plateaus of this part of central France, they loom in the distance. The lavender fields then give way to alfalfa and to craggy boxwood and thistle pasture. This is actually sheep country. For decades, people have been pasturing animals here. Laurent Fage has been raising dairy sheep since 1995, though recently he's reduced his flock and is raising them for meat. He puts his sheep out to pasture in this poor, rocky earth that it turns out is perfect for growing lavender. Lavender gets harvested at the peak of the summer, when the heat of the sun has concentrated the oil in the blossoms. Faj drives his tractor with a harvesting machine attached to it, back and forth amongst the rows of lavender plants. The machine slices off the flowers and a conveyor belt moves them up into a bin behind him on the tractor. Back at his farm, Faj describes the ideal conditions for growing lavender. Altitude, cold winters, hot summers, well-drained, rocky soil, exactly what he has here. But he's only been growing lavender for five years. From a young age, he knew he wanted to stay in the area and work in agriculture, take over the family farm, though he wasn't sure he wanted to raise sheep like they did. I didn't really want to do what everyone else was doing because I know the pressures of sheep farming. I thought about growing lavender. It's an idea that crossed my mind when I was 16 or 17. There is wild lavender here, and when I was younger and was watching the sheep, sometimes I would pick a bouquet. But the idea came and went, and I ended up doing something more traditional that suited everyone. Five years ago, on vacation with his family in the Ardèche region, near Provence, he visited a lavender museum, and he had a revelation. There were lavender fields around, and it struck me that this landscape really looked like what we have in the course. At the end of the visit, I asked the presenter some questions. I asked him, do you think lavender would grow in a landscape like the course? And he said, yes, no problem. And he asked me, have you seen it growing there? I said, yes, on the edges of the fields. So he said, you can do it then, no problem. It's the ideal terrain for lavender. As soon as he left the museum, Faj went online to research. And within two months, he'd taken a training course in the Drôme, the heart of France's lavender country. I was really into getting to know how to grow lavender. I quickly completed other training courses, and then I bought lavender seeds. Within six months of visiting the museum, he'd planted his first lavender field. After he cuts the lavender, Faj brings it back here to his barn, where he lays it out to dry. The entire floor is covered. It smells like hay. And lavender oil, of course. Faj dries the flowers before he packs it into a truck and brings it to a distiller two hours away. He has a contract with them. They take everything he produces. They're interested because his lavender is organic. His farm, the sheep, the plants have been organic since 2004. That means he can't use herbicides. And taking care of lavender without herbicides can be time-consuming because it does need a lot of weeding. Faj has decided to use the tools at his disposal, though, his sheep. 
It turns out they're a pretty good complement. During the spring, Faj puts out about 40 sheep into his lavender fields. They eat everything they can. Once in a while, they eat some of the lavender plants, but it's not too bad. Between the work they save me and the loss of income from the flowers they eat, I think the balance tilts in favor of sheep-based weeding. Since Faj started planting lavender, a few neighbors have come asking about it. A couple have even been inspired and planted their own fields. But he remains an outlier here, where sheep are still dominant. Having more producers would mean more support, more sharing of knowledge and materials, but he's used to doing things that are a little bit different from those around him. I think that I sometimes run counter to traditional production. At one point, I was giving horseback rides. I brew beer. Now it's lavender. I've been known to do things a little differently. Yeah, so he's clearly going counter to the trend, isn't he? Yeah, traditional ideas of farming here. And then there's this idea of terroir, right? Especially in France with wine and all that kind of thing. Aveyron is sheep. Lavender is Provence. Mm. Um, it's been there, grown intensively since the 19th century for the perfume industry. And, and then there's this idea of, of valorizing, of sort of giving value to these impoverished lands. I mean, it's it's rocky soil that's doesn't grow much of anything else. The sheep do that for Aveyron. Lavender does that in Provence. So is Aveyron sort of encroaching on Provence's territory then, if you like? Um, Probably not right away, though everything all over the world is, of course, changing with climate change. Um, interesting, in Europe, Bulgaria is actually becoming a major lavender producer, mm. generally lower-grade lavender oil for, you know, cleaning products, that kind of thing. France is still known for its high-quality oil. And interestingly, Sarah, I read this story because it's been picked up by the um, anti-Europe UK press mm. about how the EU is labelling lavender as a poison. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the, the EU's allergy directive. It's actually a big thing that's been going on for a few years. They're really trying to get industrial products labelized. But of course, lavender has actually gotten caught up in it because the oil contains a lot of particles. Lavender producers are obviously in Provence and elsewhere up in arms. Um, but there are discussions and there will most likically be an exception for lavender oil. Oh, Don't an worry. Another, <laughs> another exception française. There you go. So that's it for Spotlight on France uh, for this edition. If you've got any comments about the episode or in general, then why not send us an email to uh, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. And you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks on Thursday, September the 23rd. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.